We have, uh, we've come to the uh, very end of our, uh, our gospel study of the book of Mark. Um, we, we started it at the beginning of the summer, and uh, so some of you have been all here for the whole thing. And uh, it's a great ending. Jesus rises from the dead. Really doesn't get any better than that as far as an ending goes. Just when you, uh, when you think, as you're reading the book, just when you think that it's all over in this horrible crucifixion as the Messiah, Savior, King is dead, we find out it's not over. Jesus resurrects to new life. He conquers death and the grave. And there's a new beginning, restoration. This is the, the heart of our Christian faith. It's the center of our trust and belief. Jesus rose. It's why we're here today. Without it, as the Apostle Paul says, we really have nothing. We're to be pitied if this isn't true, if he didn't rise. But he did. That's what Mark is proclaiming. That's what the early church stood on and died for. That's what we believe and proclaim as Christians today. That's why come Easter as it's coming soon, we'll be, we'll be celebrating because the stone was rolled away and the angel said, he has risen. We claim this reality, we hold to it, we trust in it, we sing about it, we defend it. But here's the thing. Often this resurrection reality uh, that we proclaim is, is kind of disconnected from the reality of our daily lives. It's kind of an Easter thing rather than a truth that shapes our lives and defines and drives our lives every day. It kind of slips away from our routine and we don't even know it. I was talking to Andrew recently and, and Andrew, our youth pastor, and he, he brought this up. You see, he just came back from Ohio from dealing with the passing of his father and being there and comforting his family and participating in the services and kind of processing through it. And he said, you know, Carrie, in these past weeks, Jesus' resurrection has really moved for me from that kind of abstract idea that, that I confirm and I believe to something that's just very real to me every day, something I'm holding on to, something that steadies me. And that's the truth of it. And that's my hope as we come to this passage today for all of us, that the resurrection will move in our lives from this abstract idea about, about facing death to this real shaping hope for, for living now. For our everyday lives, it should affect us. We should live in resurrection reality. So what I want us to do this morning is to start with this text, this scene, as a reality, deal with it as a reality, and then move to, in a sense, to our reality and examine our lives in light of it. So you'll see in the bulletin, point one, that's where I want to start, point one, real history. The thing you can't miss about this text 
is how real it reads. Although every skeptic out there will say, well, this can't be true. Obviously, Mark is making this story up because resurrections just don't happen, so clearly this is fiction. Although that's what they say, it doesn't read that way, does it? It reads very real. Take, for example, the witnesses or the witness of the women. From the start of this text, it's made very clear that there are three main women who, who see everything. They witness everything. So look at, uh, at verse 40 with me, chapter 15, verse 40. This is right at the end of the crucifixion that we looked at two weeks ago, and it says this. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph, and Salome. These women witnessed Jesus' crucifixion. From Mark's account, we, besides the centurion, we don't know who else witnessed it, but we know these women saw it. Now look with me at verse 47 of our text. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. So these women also witnessed his, his burial or his entombment. They, they saw that he was indeed dead, not sick and bleeding, but dead and buried. They saw it. Now look at chapter 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that maid might go and anoint him. And very, very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. These same women witnessed the empty tomb. They're the ones that heard the angel proclaim he is risen. They are the main eyewitnesses of the central facts of the Christian faith, that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate and was crucified, that he died and was buried, and then on the third day, he rose again. The apostles' creeds, tenets of our faith. These are the main witnesses. Now you think, this is great, right? We have eyewitnesses to our faith. But actually, Mark, if he's making this up to try and convince people, would never have written it this way. Because women in that ancient culture had absolutely no clout as witnesses. They were considered unreliable. They could not testify in court unless their testimony was bolstered by that of a, of a man. They were not taken seriously. And if you're not sure about that, listen to this quote from Celsus. He's a second century Greek philosopher who hated Christianity. He constantly was debating against it or a uh, you know, was forming ap apologies against it. And this was one of his main arguments. This is a quote. The accounts of the resurrection are based on the evidence of women, and you cannot believe them because women are hysterical. That's his quote. And that was actually a very popular argument. He won a lot of 
people were listening to him in his day because of that argument. You see, Mark, if he's just making this account up to convince people, he's doing a bad job because he knows this is how people think in his day. But of course, the point is, he isn't just making it up. He's just keeping it real. He's telling it like it happened. He is writing history. And did you note how he repeats these women's full names and even some of the people that they're related to? So that you have no confusion as to who they are. And if you noted it, he did it three times. He didn't just tell you who they are the first time and then say, and you know those women. Each time he would repeat their names and who they're related to. Mark is very, if you notice through this book, he's usually a very concise writer. But here, in a short account, he repeats this full information over and over again about these women, almost ad nauseum. The question is, why? Well, it's to invite investigation. To say to the original readers, who were contemporaries of these women, go talk to them. You know who I'm talking about. I'm talking about Mary Magdalene. I'm talking about Mary, right? The, the mother of Joseph, the mother of James the Younger. Not the older James, the Younger. Check it out. Here's their names. Go talk to them. It's the same with the name drop in verse 43 of Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the council. That narrows it down. That's the Sanhedrin. There's only 70 of them. Here he is. He's a member of the council. He's from Arimathea. Joseph, that Joseph. He's telling you who he is. You can go talk to him. And you can bet when the other members of the council read that he did this, they did go talk to him. They weren't for Jesus. And we'll come back to, to him. Mark is saying to his readers, here are the facts. Here are the witnesses. This is reality. Check it out. Deal with it. That's the thing about truth that, that happens historically in time and space. It, it, it's, it, it's truth that it doesn't matter how you feel about it. It's not oh, well, I feel like this is the truth, or I feel like this is the truth. No, this is truth that stands out there. It's right here in your face. It happened. If you're a skeptic today, I want you to realize this about Christianity. It's different. Islam is based on the visions and dreams of Muhammad, not historical events. You can't go investigate them. You can't investigate a dream. Mormonism is based on the visions of Joseph Smith. There is no eyewitnesses whose testimony, testimony you can check out. It, it, it's not real truth of history. Christianity and the resurrection is a whole nother thing. It's time and space, reality, truth that you've got to deal with. But you know, this account doesn't read true simply because of, of who the witnesses are, these unlikely people, these women, but also because of how people responded to this whole scene, the honesty of their responses here, especially their responses to Jesus' death. It's all just so real. 
In our, in our last text, we saw Jesus horribly crucified, and in today's text, he's laid in a tomb. And where are the disciples, his 12 main guys that he's poured into, that we've been following through this whole book, that they've been following Jesus, these men that heard all his teachings, the men that saw all the miracle, these men that, that uh, heard him very clearly predict three different times that he would rise from the grave after three days, where are they? Where are they? They are long gone, aren't they? They have split the scene. They deserted and betrayed him. The minute he got to the cross, they said, we're out. They, they aren't waiting at the tomb in faith, ready to greet him, ready to pop the champagne. They weren't standing strong in faith, trusting in his promises. They are long gone. And it's just so real. This isn't what you would write if you were writing propaganda for Jesus. Come follow this guy that his main followers betray. It's interesting. Many people today say things like this. You know, people back then just believed in, in the miraculous a lot easier than, than we do today. That's why they, they followed Jesus, because they were just uneducated and naive and a little superstitious. They didn't think skeptically like we do today, so they were easily duped, right? They all had kind of this Gomer Pyle kind of faith. They were just like, well, golly, Jesus said he's coming in three days. Let's go hang out at the tomb. Well, they, no, that, that's not what happened, is it? They were just like us. They were skeptics. They were rationalists. And they weren't going to believe anything that might bring them to trouble or harm without hard evidence. So they bolted. They were out of there. I mean, even these women here who stick with Jesus to, to the end aren't really believing, are they? they, they they're coming to the grave with what? They aren't coming with an extra set of clothes for Jesus. What are they coming to the grave with? Or to the tomb? 16 verse 1. What do they have? Spices. For what? Yeah, to put on his body to cover the stench of a rotting corpse. It's not exactly resurrection faith. But it's very real, isn't it? And finally... What makes this passage read so real is how it ends. Look at, look at verse uh, 7 with me of chapter 16. To put my glasses on here. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So this is the angel speaking to them and telling the women what to do. Verse 8. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. What a terrible ending. The angel tells them, Jesus is risen. He's gone before them. He commands them to proclaim this good news to the disciples. And what do they do? Do they go out in faith and proclamation? No, they are terrified. And they disobey, and they tell no one the end. 
That's the ending of this gospel. It's not how we want it to end. It's not what you would write for popular consumption. In fact, it's so disappointing that some in the early church seemed to feel the need to try to fix it. That's what the rest of chapter 16 is about, by the way. That part after that little thing that says, this part isn't in the earliest manuscripts, that's because some in the early church wanted to fix the ending. And look what they added, right? They had, oh, uh, some appearances of Jesus, you need those. And the Great Commission, you need that. Both all the evidence, both internal and external, and I won't go into it all right now, make it very clear that this is a tacked-on bit that went on later. They're trying to fix the ending so that everything will finish well. But the truth is, these women, in the moment, let their faith over their fear overcome their faith, and they ran away in terrified disobedience. That's how Mark ends the book. It's just so real. And, and I have to say, if you're kind of a skeptic, you've you got to ask yourself, what happened? Because we know, as we read on in Acts, what happened with these Christians, how they came to incredible faith in Jesus and died for their message. So what changed them? What happened? What did they realize? Now, what we need to see is that in the midst of all this real history, and these real responses from people, there is a real hope here that, that, that kind of emerges. We see it introduced in verse 4. Let's read. And looking up, these women that had come to the tomb, it says, and looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. We know from the other Gospels it's an angel. And they were alarmed, as you are when you meet an angel. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. The fact is, Jesus is gone. He's not in the tomb. The stone has been moved. They were talking on the way. How are we going to move the stone? They get there. It's moved. And there's this angel, and he declares to them, he's arisen, he's alive. He's conquered death like he said he would. And the moment is so real that the women... It says, are trembling and seized with astonishment and terror. They kind of go, <gasps> it's not the kind of thing to do if you don't think it's real, right? You just be like, hey, okay, funny joke, where is he? No, it's real. This means hope. This means real hope. It means that Jesus' promises of forgiveness are real because he's alive Jesus promises to pay the ransom for our sin and win us cleansing and salvation are real because he's alive Jesus offer of life eternal for those who will trust in him 
It's real because he is alive. This is what, I don't know if you thought about it, but this is what's very unique about Christianity over all other religions. Our Messiah King, the founder of our faith, is alive. Muhammad, he's dead. On June 6, 632, after returning from Medina from a pilgrimage, he took sick for about three months and he died and he's still dead. Joseph Smith, dead. Killed by a mob in Carthage, Illinois, June 27, 1844. Still dead. Harry Krishna, dead. According to tradition, a hunter named Jara mistook him for a sleeping deer and shot him with an arrow. He's dead. I was just watching this thing on Scientology. L. Ron Hebbard is dead. Not coming back. Although they built some houses for him. I remember our former pastor, Paul Reese, saying, um, if you're traveling down a road and you come to a fork in the road and uh, you're not sure which way to go, and on this side of the fork there's a dead guy, and on this side of the fork there's a live guy saying, go this way, go with the living guy. Go with the living guy. This is real hope. Jesus claimed, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said, I come to bring life and bring it abundantly. Jesus said, all who are thirsty, come to me. And I'll give you water springing up to life eternal. And he said at the beginning of this book, as Mark quotes, repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And now he stands alive. This is hope, real hope. This is hope for Andrew and Lindsay as they deal with their father's death. Real hope. Andrew said that at the uh, memorial as he was there with little Vera and he was holding her and she peered into the casket and she said to him, is that your daddy? And he said, yes. And she said, he's all better now. I don't know what she was thinking, but she got that right. Because Jesus is alive. But the hope is even better than we think. It's even more than the promise of life. Because look at verse 6 and 7 again. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen, he is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. What's the significance of this? That he tells them to go tell the disciples and Peter. I mean, Peter is one of the disciples, right? Remember, these are the disciples that deserted him that ran away from him in his time of need. And Peter, the one who betrayed him and denied him three times, Jesus says, go tell them. He's reaching out to them. They will be the first recipients of his resurrection life. You see, 
In this, we see very clearly the hope of grace. Jesus didn't track those guys down and condemn them for their failures. That's what I would have done. I would have said, you little cowards. How, in my, you can't even believe you guys. Don't even show your face before. No. We know the story. He invites them back. He extends his grace. He went to the cross to take on all our sin, our failure, our brokenness, and the punishment we deserve, the condemnation we deserve, our very death, to pay for it all with his sinless life. And his resurrection means he did it. And so now he comes in grace. He offers his salvation and life as a free gift that he paid for to those who are undeserving, to those who keep struggling and failing. This is hope. This is a real hope for you and me. Religion, what does religion say? It says you want to have hope, you better perform. You better make yourself right before God. You must earn your salvation by works and rituals, and you're never sure if you've done enough and what about the bad stuff and what about the things you've neglected to do and what about the sins and failures you are yet to do and you know they're coming because you're a screw-up so it's just condemning and hopeless but resurrection Jesus resurrection means grace the real hope of grace Love how he says, and Peter. Sure, you tell Peter. My friends, this is where this resurrection reality meets our real lives every day. We can and must live in this grace every day. Which brings me to the final point this morning, and that is real challenge. We have real history, we have a real hope, but we also have a real challenge in this text, don't we? Because this text ends with the challenge of response. How will you respond to this resurrection reality? Because as we noted before, these women don't exactly respond well. They are amazed and astonished, but then they run away terrified, disobey the command to proclaim the good news and kind of hide. And as readers, we kind of know they are doing the wrong thing, don't we? We, we see the bigger picture and we want to correct them. We're like, no, don't run away. Mark teaches this way a lot in his gospel. If you've gone through the series with us, you find yourself kind of constantly disassociating from the disciples a little bit, right? They're doing something like telling the children not to come to Jesus, and you're like, no, what's wrong with you guys? Or they're in the boat with Jesus, and they're not trusting for a second. You're like, no, or they're saying, oh, we don't have any bread when he's just fed 5,000 people. And you're like, what's wrong? No. It's, uh, it's, it's kind of like, when you're uh, watching one of those scary movies, you know, the, the movie where the group of 
young people decide to spend a weekend at an abandoned camp. And uh, then in the middle of the night, two of them decide to sneak off to make out in the woods. And you're like, no, no, don't do it. I always pause the video with my girls. I have a bunch of teenage girls. And I say, girls, what's going to happen? And they're like, they're both going to die. <laughs> and I say, and what's the lesson? You go to make out in the woods with your boyfriend, you're both going to die. <laughs> Just remember that. This is the way it is with the ending of Mark. We know they're doing the wrong thing. But of course, it's so real and it comes back to us. It's supposed to be this point for us to have a little self-revelation. How are we responding to the resurrection of Jesus in our everyday lives? Are we going out and proclaiming the, the good news? Are we living in obedience? Are we trusting in the risen Jesus? Are we living in the hope of, of his grace, the grace of, of resurrection? Or are we kind of living in fear, keeping our heads down as Christians, telling no one, as it says here, like these women? They knew it was true and wonderful, Jesus' resurrection, but to proclaim it, to be associated with this crucified Messiah would have consequences that would not be easy. And they were scared. So they tell no one. It's the challenge, isn't it? Do friends at work or at school even know you are a Christian? Do, do you talk about your faith, the hope that you have, or are you kind of keeping a low profile? The resurrection of Jesus Christ is real history, it really happened. It brings real hope of life and grace to struggling sinners, but it's also a real challenge to live out in our lives. It takes courage, faith and courage. Remember Joseph of Arimathea. I said we would come back to him. He's kind of the, the hero, actually, in this passage in a little bit. And obviously, Jesus is the hero, but as far as the human responses go, look at verse 43 at the beginning. What did it say about him? Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. He's a member of the Sanhedrin, the ones who have beaten and tortured Jesus, who hate him, who had the trial, who brought him to be crucified. That's the group he's a member of, but he's become a disciple of Jesus. You can look at John's account and Luke's account. They talk about him and his faith. He sees the truth, so he asks for Jesus' body, probably taking it to his own family's burial tomb. He identifies with the crucified Christ, and it will cost him. He steps out, with courage over fear and acts in faith. 
And again, I think we're supposed to reflect, what's it going to be for us? What's it going to be? Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for not only your gospel truth, but for the way you've taught it to us through Mark, the way you've shown us the reality of your resurrection and these real people like us with real responses and real struggles. Lord, we pray that you would help us by your spirit to be people who live in your resurrection reality, people who go out proclaiming, people not afraid to identify with you as our crucified Savior, people who rest in the grace of your resurrection hope. We pray these things in your son Jesus' name.